So let's pray, and then we will dive in. Jesus, just uh, as John was saying, just thank you for, for pursuing us in the depth of that darkness. Thank you that you, you bring us out of that darkness, that you not only pull us from our own darkness, but that you see us through darkness that's put on us from the world, um, and you give us hope within that darkness. And so I pray for all of us tonight that we would be um, here to hear from you, myself included, um, particularly, for, particularly for those who are coming that, that feel affliction and burden and heaviness. Um, would, this, would this book be an encouragement to them as it was intended to be, an encouragement to the, the church at Thessalonica during a tough time? And so uh, would you use that in ways that I could, can't even fathom? And so um, I ask for the ability to teach Holy Spirit and for all of us the ability to learn and hear from you. Uh, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for loving us first. And we can't wait to see you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been with us, we've been going through Thessalonians, as I said. We've, we've chucked our way all the way through 1 Thessalonians, and tonight we're going to take a look at 2. Um, it's actually kind of fitting that we kind of to, to kind of run over it in, in a week because a lot of the themes are the same, but I want to set it up again. It's still written by Paul, of course, with his buddies, uh, Silvanus, which is also Silas. So if you remember the story of Paul being in prison with Silas, um, one of my favorite bands, Thrice, writes a song, When the Earth Will Shake, and it talks about this epic scene where Paul and Silas are in a jail and they're praying and they're singing and, and God shakes the earth and breaks them free and all the doors swing open and the, the guard thinks that his life is over, his career is over, he's let the prisoners go and so he's about to kill himself and Paul says, hey, homie, um, we're still here. Uh, we didn't go anywhere. And so... Paul was there, Silas was there next to him, and so Silas is one of his traveling companions. Paul is writing it, Silas is with him. It also says, and Timothy, Timothy was another companion of the Apostle Paul. If you don't know the Apostle Paul, um, his backdrop, long story short, he was a persecutor of the church, and on his way to persecute more Christians on one of his travels, Jesus showed up. He never met Jesus in his public ministry, but he met Jesus as Jesus cracked open heaven and smacked him behind the head and said, Saul at the time, why are you persecuting me? And so he had a radical conversion Timothy, his traveling compartner, had a completely boring faith walk, kind of like myself, sort of grew up in the church, you know. Um, Paul writes to him at some other point in scripture and says, oh, you have the faith of your mother and grandmother and you're just like them and no kid wants to hear that. And like, oh, you know, and so he's got silent. Paul has this radical testimony. Timothy has this very boring testimony and we love boring testimonies too. Um, and so he's, he's writing, Paul is writing this letter and if you've been with us through First Thessalonians, you know that that was written to the church at Thessalonica. It was a church that was in northern Greece that was a, at a very critical juncture in a, in a few routes, trade routes, cultural routes. A lot of stuff went through this city. And we're going to read how this church was planted here in a second. Um, very bustling town. Um, I think it, still today, I think it's the second largest city in Greece next to Athens. And um, just, just, uh, just kind of like a hub of cultural and influence. And it was a great place to plant a church. And Paul's writing to this church because as we'll see, he wasn't there very long. He planted the church there and he was not there very long. And so he was concerned that this young church, this new church, would fall into the trap of false teachings and false theologies and fall away from truth and not adhere to what we would maybe term orthodox Christian doctrine. And none of those words are scary, don't worry. And so he, he sends Timothy up to check on this church. He's in, he's south, um, 
after he gets kicked out, he sends Timothy up and Timothy comes back and Paul, like a good pastor, is like, how are they doing this young church? And Timothy's like, they're doing awesome. They're doing great. It's amazing. And Paul's going, oh. So it's one of those letters where it's not like, everything's falling apart, Paul. Write a letter. Course correct. It was like, no, they're doing, they're doing great, actually. Paul, oh. So he writes this letter to them and sends it to them being like, you guys are doing really great. And he continues to challenge them, continue to press. That's what we talked about that, I think, last week. He said, he doesn't just end there like, hey, heard things are great, so good on you. Love Paul. You know, he was like, he, he still pressed them. He still challenged them. He still encouraged them. He still exhorted them on things. And they, they weren't perfect. We like to romanticize the first century church. They were just as screwed up as you. Don't worry. Okay. They were just as screwed up as us. They were messed up. They had sexual immorality and, and rampant anger and impatience and greed and, and lust, just like we do. No different. Humans. And so, but he writes and he, he challenges them on a couple of things. The second letter was written any time from a couple months after the first letter up to about a year. We don't really know necessarily, um, but generally it's, it's believed to have been within a year, whether it was three, four, five months, six, eight, 12 months. It was written fairly short afterwards. And so a lot of, apparently what could have happened as we'll see is a couple things is that there were still questions about what Paul wrote in the first letter. And if you haven't read the first letter or weren't with us for the study, challenge you to just read through it um, real fast uh, this week. Take a look at it. You'll see some of the same themes tonight because he was reiterating some of the same themes. So it, it, it sounds like Paul wasn't meaning to be redundant. He was clarifying some of the things in regards to the end times and false teachings. It also appears that that young church was receiving fake letters, as we're going to see that people were faking and forging letters and sending them to this church or at least showing up and presenting different ideas and new ideas because you're going to see both at the top and the bottom of this letter. He's very diligent to note. It says in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, two, which we're going to read, it says, not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us. Says, Don't be shaken by the things you've read in a letter as if it was from us, Okay. So we, we get the indication that there were some false letters being sent to this church. Because look, there's nothing more ripe for a fake teacher than a young church who's, who's quote, immature in their faith, okay? And so these people are coming in. It says, as though the day of Christ has come. We'll talk about that. And at the very end in, in verse, or in chapter three, verse 17, it says, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which I is a sign of every epistle, so I write. He was even saying, look, you've got to look for my signature, You've got to look for my handwriting, learn how I sign my name because he's combating false teachings. And I wanted to set this up. We didn't even do this at the beginning of the first Thessalonians study. I wanted to actually look, I just alluded to the fact that Paul wasn't at this church very long. Um, most, I'd say most believe it was about three weeks. Some people say it was about three months, depending on how you define the Sabbath. Cause sometimes they would say, if you did something for three Sabbaths, that was actually like tithing Sabbaths. And so it was like once a month, regardless, three weeks up to three months, it's not a long time to plan a church. Okay. I think we can all agree. It's not a long time to plan a church. And I want to read the account that we have in Acts 17, one through 10, that shows how the church was planted and why Paul had to leave so fast. It says this in Acts 17, one through 10. It says, now when they had passed through Amphilippos, I think, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them. 
He went in. He didn't say, oh, they believe something different. I'll stand out here with a sign. He went in, he engaged, and he said, and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. That's gutsy. Paul, former Jew, Pharisee, super smart, super intellectual, probably had the equivalent of three law degrees, walks in and it says that he reasoned with them. I think it's a nice way of saying he debated. He engaged, he hooked and jabbed and Paul was smart, smart as, as attack, sharp as attack. It says that he reasoned for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ, that's a title, not his last name, that the Christ, the Messiah, the son of man, the son of God, him who the Jews were expecting, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, quote, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. It's not his last name. He's saying, we've been waiting for the Messiah I was a Pharisee. They knew him. He was a Gentile. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee before the law. He was blameless. He says, look, he's here. That's what Paul hinged his entire argument on. And he went through the scriptures. He was diligent, but he stood up and he said, Jesus had to die. And they should have been accustomed to blood offerings. They should have been accustomed to sacrificial systems. They were, they knew it. He says, all that blood, all that mess that we've been doing in our religious ceremonies would ultimately lead to a Messiah that would come and it would be one bloody slaughter for all time. And he said, this Jesus that I preach, he's here. That's his name. They didn't know what his name would be. And he says, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. And he says, and some of them were persuaded. Now you got a church. And a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. They got a church. They believe it. He's here. Jesus has done what we wanted our Messiah to do. He has saved us from our sin. And so they joined Paul and Silas, but the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace. They basically went in and found criminals. Some of the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. What was their crime? Saying that the king had arrived. The king over all, not a political king, as many of them wanted in the Messiah but saying that he is a king. And Jesus himself said, when they, when they confronted Jesus, he said, some say that you're a king. And he says, it is as you say. And he wasn't there to run the government. He was there to be over the entirety of creation. So he says, they're saying there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away 
by night. There was an uproar. Like it or not, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He was not and is not a militant king. Not yet, at least. But he knew that his message, that the gospel, the fulfillment of all prophecy would cause division. And so Paul now has a church. He preaches for a couple weeks, maybe a couple months. There's an uproar that these Christians dare say there's a king. And so they leave and they get sent out and they begin to move south. They end up in Southern Greece. A little while later, that's when First Thessalonians is written. Paul says, man, I gotta see how that church is doing. We, we went out in the middle of the night. Some of them might not have even known we left. Not like they texted them. Like, hey, we're out. We'll see you next time. Like they were out in the middle of the night. Didn't get a chance to probably say goodbye to everyone. So he writes this letter. Turns out they're doing great, but they're still under persecution because those Christians didn't stop being Christians. They didn't change their message. And so we're gonna see some thematic similarities. And really what I'm doing is I'm just setting this up and we're just gonna kind of like read the whole letter and I'm gonna jump in here and there as I'm prone to do. But I'm setting up the letter because again, I kind of want us to see us the arc of it before we actually just read through the test because there's something just incredibly powerful about just reading a letter as a letter, right? And not having to always up, down. I'm, I'm gonna jump in at times. I'm gonna explain things, but I'm gonna set it up. You're gonna see a lot of the same thematic um, similarities. Again, what you're gonna see is that he, he quite possibly received word that they had questions about the end times. Anyone here have questions about the end times? Anyone? Two people are being honest, okay? The rest of you have no clue, okay? <laughs> right, the rest of us have, I've talked through the entire book of Revelation. People are like, how does it go down? I'm like, it's chaos. That's about it. Uh, I don't know exactly. Paul had taught that we're gonna be raptured. At least some believe that, he, that we're gonna be raptured before the tribulation. Some believe we get raptured during the tribulation. Some people think we don't go anywhere until after the tribulation. Calvary Chapel tends to teach that we're gone, which selfishly super happy about, like kind of wanna be gone in heaven with popcorn at that point. Okay, and so um, we, just watched, we just watched Superman versus Batman last night. Some of the college folks, as we were next door, I'm pretty sure Revelation is gonna be somewhat like that, okay? If you've seen it, absolute utter chaos. I realized last night that the first time I saw it in the theater, I fell asleep. I just remembered that because I was like, first couple scenes, I was like, I remember this. And then all of a sudden it just went black. I'm like, I have no clue. And I would have remembered this. Okay. So I watched it kind of for the first time last night. I'm like, utter just chaos. It's going to be absolutely crazy. Um, But we all have questions about the end times. We talked about that a little bit last week because he went into that. Um, We talk about that's being eschatology, a study of the end times. There's a lot of uncertainty and it's okay, by the way, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, all love Jesus going to be in heaven. We can ask him about it then. Amen? Don't divide over that, okay? Let's not divide over eschatology by any means. Study to show yourself approved. If it interests you, take a look at it, but don't be divisive over it, Okay? But he's going to go into this. There were some questions. They're like, because likely what's happening is that they're receiving some of these false letters and people are like, no, the day of the Lord's here, man. We got, we got new word from God. Like, and they're like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. And he talked about the day of the Lord. And, and is that now? Is it here? Look, as we agreed last week, it's been the end time since Jesus left, yes? Okay, but what he was talking about was a time of general peace and security before the tribulation happens. We saw that last week. And so he's going to combat some of these false teachings that are creeping in. As I said, it's got forged letters. So he, you'll see at the top and the bottom of the letter, he says, look, there's letters that seem like they're from us, but they're not. You need to know my signature. You need to see what my hand looks like. I put that at the bottom of all real letters. 
Um, the, the, the book itself is, is generally distinguished in a sense that it gives, because this is pre-revelation, by the way. See, we get to be on the, the other side of full revelation. We've, we, we have the entire Bible. They didn't. So, so however you piece together some of the timelines, we know that revelation wasn't written until about 90 AD. Thessalonians was written about 50, 51 AD. And so they didn't have John's account of the end times. So they were probably even more confused than we are because they didn't even have revelation. They had prophecy, they had Isaiah. They had some things in the old Testament, super vague, super bigs, right? And like, oh, we don't know if it's the day, it's the end time. So he's gonna, he's gonna start by showing them some of the end times. And here's the thing, like, the, I, I, want, I want the end times, I, I want that topic to give you hope. Like, it, it's, it's bloody, it's a mess. Like, like I, I joke, but Jesus comes back and kills people. He, he comes back on a horse wearing a white robe. He's been dipped in blood. He has crowns. His eyes are like fire. Like he comes back and it says that he comes to tread the winepress in the fury, the wrath of almighty God. Why? Because he absorbed all the wrath for all time on the cross. So he gets to dole it back out. God, the father's not angry anymore. The Holy Spirit's not angry. He has no more wrath to give. It was all absorbed. Jesus holds it. You read Revelation, it says that it begins to pour out. He gets, since he contains now the, 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 the gravity of the wrath of God, Jesus is the only one that can pour it back out. He suffered the judgment of God on our behalf. Therefore, he's the only one that can give judgment back out. And it is, it's a bloody mess. We're gonna talk about the end times, but I want you to find hope in that. Like, not, don't be like weird like me. It's like, <laughs> did, you, did you see what he does in Revelation 19? Like, but, but, it, but I find my hope in that because I'm sick of sex trafficking. I'm sick of abuse. I'm sick of cancer. I'm sick of war and I've seen it. I, I'm, I'm sick of, of pain. I'm sick of suffering. I've got a woman at my office right now going through cancer. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of what sin has done, not her sin, everyone's sin, our sin, all sin. I'm sick of it. But I find hope that Jesus will complete it all when he says enough is enough. And he's giving people time right now, just like he gave us time before we were saved. He's giving people time. So I even understand the patience that he has to some degree, but I want you to find hope in the end times. Not some weird fascination with how Jesus ends it all, but the fact that Jesus is gonna end it all. And so we're gonna see that there's a detailed description of the end times written pre-revelation. False teachers were presenting fake letters as if from Paul saying that the day of the Lord had already come. And so he's gonna give more detail on that. And concerning Paul had taught the believers, this is very concerning for them because Paul had taught them that they would be gone. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we interpret it to say that Paul said, look, we're going to be gone for tribulation. And then someone comes in and says, hey, tribulation's begun. We're like, Why aren't we gone? Like left behind. Why am I still here? Right? <laughs> Anyone seen that? Read that? Mark's here. Dude, he makes me feel hilarious. The rest of you, you don't have to do a thing. The rest of the sermon, Mark will make me feel funny. Okay? So <laughs> that's my dude. All right. And so this is concerning if the day of the Lord had begun and Christians are like, well, we're supposed to be gone. Right? So he's going to go into that. Paul had, had explained that the future time in tribulation had not yet come because a certain, quote, man of sin had not yet been revealed. It's the Antichrist. And we hold to that position that we are not in the tribulation. We, if we're still here, you will know. 
There's not going to be like, are we in the tribulation? I should study it. You'll know. Read Revelation. There will be mountains flying. I think it's begun. Okay. So here's some big ideas. Again, I want to just kind of set up the whole book. Okay. And then we're going to get into a lot of reading. Out of concern for the Thessalonians, I've got that the believers are trying to stand firm in their faith under pressure from false teachers. And they're taught that the hope is in Christ's future return. Like we look back on the cross every sermon, don't we? We, we look back on the cross as, as, as the crux of all time. There's something happened about 2017 years ago that changed the entire calendar system. Something, you have to at least admit that. But let us not forget that we are looking back to the cross and the redemptive work that was done, but we are looking forward to the return of Jesus. The gospel didn't end at the crucifixion. He said it was finished because it was signed, sealed, and delivered, and victory was handed to all who would be found in him. But we're still here, aren't we? Like when he said, it is finished, shouldn't have the whole thing ended? Why still here? Why still suffering? Why still being persecuted? Why still darkness? Why still times of trial in our life? Because God's being patient and giving people time. And so there were false teachers. There's false teachers now. They're out there. But he's going to teach them that their hope is in Christ's future return. That Jesus' impending return should serve as an encouragement to them and us in suffering, motivating them to live for him now through suffering. Just as I said, he not only pulled you from darkness, he wants to walk with you through it. And he endured darkness. So if we're going to be like him, wouldn't it make sense that we learn what it's like to walk through pain and suffering just as Jesus walked through pain and suffering? To be more like him, to be more conformed into his image. And Paul always connected his teachings on Jesus with practical growth. He expected to see as a result of such deeply held faith. And our next series is really going to challenge us on that. This is going to set up quite beautifully our next series which is going to say, if you go into anyone, any vestige of society, you're going, to be, you're going to come in contact with one of about seven mountains of influence. And how Christians respond in those areas is a defining moment in what we claim to be a faith. But as the book of James says, if you truly have this faith, show me. But I believe, saved by grace through faith. I know, exactly. And it's a faith a true faith that pours itself out toward the world. It doesn't keep it in and get clicky. It pours into culture. It pours into family and friends and college and work and education and politics. And it goes everywhere with you, despite what other people say, does. So he's going to connect that. Here's a really fast outline. I just kind of looked through it and said, look, if it, if it has one kind of sequence of thought, it's this, there's hope amid suffering. Do not be shaken. Some of you are suffering right now and you're shaking. It's not to belittle what you're going through, but it says, find hope in your suffering in the coming of Jesus. Do not be shaken by the world. Stand fast and put your faith into action. So with that, we're going to jump into this second epistle of Paul to the church at Thessalonica. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy 
to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. It is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of everyone and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. He said this before. He said, that's how I know you're a healthy church. That's it. Paul was a Pharisee. Dude could write for days. And he said, you want to know how I know if you're healthy? Here it is. That your love of everyone of you abounds toward each other. You have a faith and you have a love. So that we ourselves, verse four, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches. Paul says, I go other places and I tell about you to the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. He says, which, verse five, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. He says, when you encounter suffering and you endure righteously, that is evidence of your justification. That is evidence that you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, that you are being conformed into the image of Christ, that you actually are, despite how many people call themselves, that you actually are a Christian. Take a look at the studies. They do it of, of, of America all the time. What faith do you align with? High percentage, Christian. You ask them a couple more questions. Is Jesus God? Well, no. We get down to a minority real fast when you start asking questions. He says, one of the ways that you'll know is that when Christians indwelled with the Holy Spirit, when they encounter suffering, they endure it righteously with the hope that this provides evidence to a fallen world that our faith is real. And so amid suffering, we endure righteously, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer. It's, tra- it's not translated that you may become worthy. It's that you are reckoned as worthy. It's that, that Jesus's righteousness has been imputed on you. It's not that you must do that so that you will be righteous. It says that you will see that because you are righteous. So don't read that to mean that Man, if I didn't at one point righteously endure suffering, then, then I won't be counted righteous. He says, it's that you will be reckoned as righteousness because of what Christ has done, not because of what you are doing. Verse six, it says, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those. See, and, and, if, and, if, and if you're looking for kumbaya God, this is not your chapter, but it's true. If you're looking for kumbaya Jesus, this isn't your chapter, but this is the true Jesus. Again, they've got questions about the end time and he doesn't do this to, to boast because he says he boasts in nothing but the cross of Christ. He, but he, he does this to provide hope in what Christ has still yet to do. He says, and since it is righteous thing with God to repay the tribulation, those who trouble you, right? It's like you see it with the kids. It's like, look, I don't need to fight back. Why? Because dad's coming. <laughs> like, and he's going to be able to do way more than I possibly could, right? And to give you who are troubled rest. That's what he wants. If you're here tonight, and, and all of us are in some way, shape, or form, but particularly for those of you that came in feeling incredibly heavy, let this look forward to what Jesus will do, give you rest. 
let that merit meta narrative of the gospel, this, this, this ongoing massive story that has implications for us, certainly, but it moves on regardless of us. Thank goodness. The gospel moves. It will be accomplished. It has been finished. It will be completed. Find rest in the big picture. Endure righteously. The suffering now is evidence of your faith but find rest in this, that at some point Jesus says enough is enough. He says, and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. He's gonna get more into the end times but in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know him. If you know me, you know that I love metal. And like, not like the stuff you build with, but like the music. And, and I told you last week, and I'm going to do this, um, that I've, I've been listening to one of the first band, the, the first band that got me into metal. And a lot of people think it's just, it's so dark and it is, it's totally dark. But when you begin to uncover the lyrics, you begin to see how beautiful it is that some of these Christian metal bands go on secular tours. They go into very, very dark places, very, very dark places. And I have personal communication with some of my favorite bands now because I have a side business and they wear our clothes and whatnot. And so I've got a personal connection to some of these guys and the stories that they tell about going into dark places and ministering there. I mean, I had one lead singer of one of the huge metal, I mean, huge in the metal scene is like, you know, 40 fans, but like, but like, but like, pretty big and they ended and he said and and he said christians would come up to me all the time like why do you tour like you're headlining now why do you tour with secular bands he goes who else would i minister to i'm gonna tour with a bunch of christian bands they're already saved like what are you talking about i mean i went to some of their shows there's people wearing upside down crosses and yet when they come on they're screaming my king is alive now, are they all of a sudden believers no but are they listening to that band of course they go into these dark places and they take a message and they find hope even in some of the brutality of what Jesus promises. I'll, I'll give you an example. One of my, the first band, Micah, where did Micah go? He disappeared. There you are. He, they got me into metal years ago and he started me with a band called O Sleeper. And I think they're kind of done. They just released a single. I'm not sure what they're going to do, but I've been like back on their train and I've been listening to one of their albums again over and over and over. And there's this song. And I listened to it on the way here because I'm super cliche like that. And, um, and they have this song called The Finisher. And he, look, is this Bible? No. Okay. It's like when you go see the shack, is it exactly Bible? No. Okay. But is this a literary, is this, is this taking a, a creative spin on a reality where in a dark place you can still find hope? I think so. They write this song called The Finisher. You just have to let me do this. Okay. Because these are the lyrics that you can't really understand because he's screaming. Okay. But this is a letter from Jesus to Satan in the end. From their perspective, taking creative liberty, to be certain. Not the Bible. In fact, I think the Bible is actually way more explicit. But this is what he says. 
And we're going to read Revelation in a little bit, but he says, do you mean to challenge me because your speech is threatening to the writer of your history through a future perverted by envy? Your whisper may sway the weak, but when I speak, it roars the seas. Your challenge has been met because with a breath, I could snap your neck. This won't be like the first time you tried because my patience and mercy for you has run dry. You've watered among my bride and started seeds to feed your throning flight. I will sing to the world your storm is capturing and the angels will join me. We will sing to a world reborn from suffering. But mark my words, because if that tree keeps them from seeing me, I will burn off your limbs and you will never shade again. You will bow at my feet or I will rip out your knees and make of your face all the carnage you crave. I am the finisher and I am forever. We will sing to a world reborn from suffering. For the armories, the angels, from the armories, the angels will sing. You will see them end the suffering. From the armories, the angels sing. You will fear them when they lift their wings. They will sing to a world reborn. They will sing as I cut off your horns. I will cut off your horns. These guys find hope in dark places. They find hope amid suffering. They find hope in the end times. That Jesus will finish and be forever. But it doesn't mean that we don't have a calling on our life to work for restoration now. And so he says, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Verse 11, therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. That God would count you worthy to endure righteously through suffering. It's not easy. No one ever said it would be. If you signed up for Christianity thinking my life gets easier, sorry. I don't know who lied to you, but it doesn't. These Jews signed up for Christianity and it got worse. Why? Because the world's in conflict with how it all ends. And he says, find hope. That day will come, Jesus will come, and he will be glorified. That's the meta narrative. That's the big idea. Find hope, find rest in your suffering now. Show them evidence that you truly believe that that day is coming. It says that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter two, now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, we ask you, not to soon, not to be soon shaken in the mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as I said, he's, he's counteracting forged letters, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by means, by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. You confer that with Daniel, Matthew, Revelation. It's the Antichrist. He's not here yet. He's not here yet. Republicans told you it was Obama. <laughs> Democrats are telling you it's Trump. Neither of them. Okay? He's not here yet. He's not here yet. Paul's saying, 
Stand fast. Not yet. So when he comes, you'll know. Like I said, mountains, okay? Just being thrown into the ocean. We're probably going to have a front row seat to that in California, by the way. So Mount Boney, there it goes, okay? Verse four, so he says, not until the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God. That has always been the devil's aim. That will be the antichrist's aim. It's what, the devil, it's what got the devil kicked out of heaven is that he wanted to be like the most high, it says in Isaiah. That was his sin. Our sin was the same in the garden. That we chose that we wanted to be like God. And we got kicked out. And Paul says, I went to them and I preached why Jesus had to die. Why? Because we said we would make ourselves out to be like God. And sin entered the world and we've been fractured ever since. And so something had to reconnect us to a perfect God and Jesus came. And so he says, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see that in Revelation. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. He said, look, I I wasn't there long, but we talked about this, right? (laughs) Remember. And now, verse six, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do until will do so until it, he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Some of you may not know how this goes down. Some of you think I'm going to turn to Revelation 19. I'm not. Revelation 19 is where Jesus comes and makes war on his enemies, but it's not where he vanquishes Satan. That comes in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, we see that Satan is bound for a thousand years, okay? The angels come and they, they, they bind him up. And keep in mind that, that Satan is not Jesus' opposing equal. Remember this. Satan is not Jesus' opposing equal. The archangel Michael is Satan's opposing equal. Jesus is a king above the entire battlefield. Jesus sits above, he has no opposing equal. That was not a fight. That was a sacrifice. He took a beating once. He'll never take it again. He sits as king and Lord over the entire battlefield. We see that the angels bind up Satan and his minions for a thousand years. And then something strange happens. God lets him out. One of the most fascinating questions in Christendom. Why? You've bound up Jesus or you've you've bound up Satan. Why let him out? I'm not saying the Bible says this. My answer is this, to show us one last time that people still choose darkness over light. He lets Satan out after a thousand years of being bound. He lets Satan out. Satan and his minions and the Antichrist and the beast and the dragon amass a new following. It's one, it's one, it's it's Jesus saying one last time. One last time, in the end, the tribulation, everyone's gone. It's just enemies, binds up Satan, The saints reign with Jesus and he says, I'm just going to let him out. Last chance, mercy, patience, lets him out. People are like, let's go with that guy. Thousand years bound by Jesus himself and his angels. People still choose Satan. We still choose darkness. He lets him out and it says this, after the saints reign, he lets them out and there's a satanic rebellion 
and says, now when the thousand years had expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gag and Magog and the other, and and to gather them together for battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. You know how many that is? A lot. Been to Zuma? Counted sand recently? Okay. That's just one beach in one state, in one country on this earth. As the sand is on the sea, people still choose darkness. But there he is, Jesus' last chance. You know what I can do. You know who I am. Last chance. And his enemies still choose Satan, but they don't even get close to him this time. Just as it said in 2 Thessalonians, he don't even get close to him. It says, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. I mean, they were actually, they were chesting up to heaven at this point. Here we go, guys, let's go in. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. It's over. They're like, all right, we're ready. God's like, no, thanks. That's it. That was your chance. It says fire came out of heaven and it devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So he says again in verse eight, Second Thessalonians. He says, the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Verse nine, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of truth that they may be saved. You guys, we do this all the time. We choose us over the truth myself included. We choose us over truth. Day in, day out, by the grace of God, we're covered by the sacrifice of Christ, but some are not. And he says, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion and they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Our calling is the exact opposite. This is the antithesis of the Christian life. We choose truth, love, faith, grace when the world chooses unrighteousness, lies, deception, and lust. This is but we, verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, Beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you. If you're a Christian, I'm here to tell you, God chose you. If it's stirred in your heart that Jesus did what he said he has done, and you give your life to him tonight, you're chosen. People say, oh, elect, who's elect? People who love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you're elect. I didn't always. Do you now? Yeah, you're elect. Was I then? Yeah. How does that work? No idea. Can't wait to ask him. (laughs) Sovereignty. I don't have to get it. I don't have to marry God's sovereignty in our free will. I don't have to be able to explain perfectly that. I don't have to reconcile those two. God will. But I do know that to be true. If you love Jesus, you've been chosen. 
You've been chosen. And, and we, get, we love to be chosen for things in life. And then we hear that in faith. And we're like, yeah, but don't tell me to do anything. Right? Like, like dad, I got chosen for varsity team. What are you going to do now? Well, I'm not going to go. I mean, I just got like chosen. It's like, fine, it's cool. We're good. Like, like I don't have to practice coach. I was chosen. I don't have to do it. I don't have to sweat. I don't have to hurt. I don't have to play in games. I don't have to lose at times. You were chosen, weren't you? Well, yeah, but I didn't think I was chosen to go through any issues. Of course you were. You're chosen. We do that all the time. We, man, whether it's you got chosen to sit first chair and band, you got chosen for the, the football team, you got chosen in your workplace, you go up against 50 resumes and you get chosen. It's not like, oh, good, I don't have to do anything now. But we do that in our faith. I was chosen. Okay, good. I don't have to do anything now. Good, I've been chosen. I'm good. So we hear this calling on our life to go into dark places, to go in with a hope, to endure things righteously. We're like, oh, I'm, and to, to, to pour out our work in faiths and to serve the church and as Jesus loved and served the church and to serve the community and to serve in your job and to serve your family, your friends. You're like, oh, wait, I don't have to do that. I'm saved by grace. You've been chosen. You're on the team. Question is, are you on the field? Are you in the game? Are you going to show the evidence? I don't have to show evidence. That's legalism. Jesus will contend with you on that. He didn't have to come to earth. He didn't have to serve people. He didn't have to love people. He chose to. Why? Because he was chosen. He said, I came to do the will of the Father. Christians, we've been chosen. We got to act like it. Not out of legalism, but out of adoration. Not out of compulsion, but out of adoration. We've been chosen. Look, I, I, I've, I have not been called into full-time ministry. I am called, I know without a doubt. I sat in Pastor Rob's office. He said, hey, can we get you on staff? I said, Rob, I am called to be in business. That's my calling. And he was like, good. <laughs> At least we know. Like, if you're, wherever you are called, you are chosen to be there, redeemed to show redemption. And I'm setting up the next series, but no matter where you go, the question will be, are you displaying the evidence of salvation there? So it says you've been chosen. But we are bound to give thanks always. Again, verse 13, chapter 2. Always for you, brethren, beloved by our Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification. And by the way, you weren't chosen to perfection. You were chosen to sanctification. You were chosen and put into a process, not an end goal. I'm here to tell you, God has no goal for your life. He has a process for it. He doesn't hope you get to be like that one guy you saw when you were younger that was super holy. He's not holding you to your parents' faith. He's not holding to your siblings' faith, your friends' faith, your pastor's faith, anyone else's faith. He doesn't have a goal for your salvation. He has a process for it. When you're in that process, every day you're becoming more like Jesus. That's where he wants you. That's why the Bible says he's perfected those who were being sanctified. It's like saying the people that are done are the ones that are currently working on it, right? If you're working on it, you're done, you're perfect. How so? Because you're working on being better. Uh, but it's not that you're being better. It's that Jesus is making you better, that he's making you more like him. So in that sense, yeah, you are becoming better. Will you ever be sinless? No, but by the grace of God, you will sin less if you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And so he says, sanctification, salvation through sanctification, saved yet being sanctified, 
becoming more like Jesus. People ask me all the time, what do I do? How do I start being more like Jesus? You ever read what he did? No? We got like whole four books on it. Like you could just start there. Start with Mark. Start with the gospel. That's another question I get. No right or wrong answer. Where do I start? Should I read? What, What book should I read? You know, start with the gospel. If you want to be more like Jesus, take a look at his public ministry. Take a look at his life and work on earth and see how it applies to where you are when you're there. Salvation through sanctification by the spirit and the belief in truth. We stand for truth. You're going to hear a lot about that in the next series. Standing for truth in dark places. The metal bands that I listen to go into dark places and they preach and they get heckled. I was there at, at, at the Whiskey A Go-Go when my, one of my favorite bands, Wolves of the Gate, was playing. They, they, they take 10 minutes off in their set. They're not a headlining band. 10 minutes is critical. And they stand there and he told us a story about a woman that was broken and hurting and was at a well. They're like, we didn't come to church. And he's, he continued to preach. They go into dark places with a restorative mindset, evidence of salvation. We have a belief in truth. We take it everywhere. Verse 14 says, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Stand fast. Hold your ground, Christian. We're loving and we're gracious, but we stand our ground. Do we turn the other cheek? Yeah, but we don't step back. We stand our ground. He says, stand fast and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God the Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Rely on him. Pastor Mark, how do I do it? Ask him. I get pastoral counseling. I get pouring into the other lives I've preached on and I teach on and I believe in it. But if you don't go to the senior pastor first, if you don't go to Jesus first, my first question will be, as I've had to learn as a pastor, I go to Rob, I got an issue, Rob. He's like, how's your prayer life? I'm like, dang it, I'll see you next week. <laughs> how's your prayer life? Have you gone before him? Before you come to me? I'll tell you, He's better. He's better. He knows you more. You got to try to explain the thing and I'm going to try to pretend that I know how to go to Jesus first. I'm not, I'm not saying there's no such thing as pastoral authority, but run to the senior pastor first. That's what we'll do. We'll tell you to go to him first. How do I do it? How do I be established in every good word and every good work? Prayer, study, community. Chapter three says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. And that we may be delivered from the unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. Paul was under tough times too. He was writing this letter from Corinth. A disgusting city. And he had a church and he had issues at the church and he had people coming into the church and he's pouring into the church at Thessalonica who's doing pretty great and he's still challenging him, but he says, look, things aren't great here either. So Paul's saying, be strong, stand fast. Not like, well, you have it good. He's like, no, I don't. He's living out what he's preaching and teaching. It's not just, it's just not just me saying like, hey, just be, just be fine with your circumstances. I know it and I have my own right now. I have my own issues. I'm broken in certain areas that I need to be built up in certain areas. 
I'm not just saying flippantly, like, hey, just stand fast. We're all going through issues. Paul was going through issues. And he's still encouraging other Christians to stand fast in truth and in love and in faith. He says, but pray for me that I may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. Here's, by the way, long story short, some people in church don't have faith. That's what it says. Some people in church are not Christians. It haunted me for well over a year, two years ago, where Jesus says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what he says? Not everyone that says is a Christian is a Christian. I no longer look at it as like, hey, look, room full of Christians. I'm gonna go tell them about the world outside. I'm like, man, room full of people that I don't know sometimes. People go through the whole life, I'm Christian. He says, some don't have the faith. Some of you are here right now. You've been faking it. You're here for religious reasons. Jesus doesn't care. Could care less about your religious reasons. We're not here for religiosity. We're here for the transformation of the gospel. If you've been faking it tonight's night, to stop. It's to say, I'm, I've been faking it, Jesus. I want it to be real. You open up to him, he will give you what you ask for. He will cover your sins, past, present, and future. He will care for you in ways that no pastor on earth could possibly care for you. I'll try, but I'm not gonna come close. So you've been faking it. You're here because your parents think you need to go to church. You're here because you think you need to go to church. I've been there, I've been there, I've done that. Jesus never preached religiosity. Church is not confined to these walls and there's people here that don't have faith. Paul said he went in there and he preached to them why Jesus had to die and rise again. All of us are in common by one of two things, sin and or Jesus. Sin and Jesus, everyone here knows they've sinned at least once. And by biblical standards, that separates you from all of eternity from God. It's not a 51% scale that he'll let me in because I, would, I didn't break four of the 10 commandments. I never murdered anyone. I think I'm in. And keep in mind, Jesus didn't, there's hundreds of laws in the Old Testament. And Jesus didn't come and say, by the way, you don't have to worry about those. He came and he actually made it harder. He raised the bar. He said, you've heard it said, don't murder anyone, right? You're like, okay, good, I've done that. He goes, don't even think angry thoughts toward him or you've murdered, shoot. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Oh, thank goodness, I haven't cheated on my wife. If you just think lustfully about someone you've committed adultery. Jesus set the bar higher. What, what, is a good, what, is a, what is an amazing man's sin? Once a day? Seven times a day? 365 days a year? 80 years? You stand before, before a holy and perfect God? Say, I was pretty good. Jesus had to come because in the fall, Humanity, which was created perfect and good, chose God or chose themselves as God over the true God. And sin fractured us. Sin fractured us. It broke us. It moved us away from an eternal trajectory toward a community with God, toward eternal damnation. And we can't recalibrate our own trajectory. There's nothing we can do to pull ourselves out of this path toward hell. I've used the analogy before. The first time my little boy got chesty with me, we were at the ocean, right? He started to kick water at me and splash me. I picked him up, put him down, a little deeper water. He's like, shoot, starts running back, wave hits him, right? Little five-year-old, Ethan's under. No ability to save himself. He's done. Someone has to come into the situation and pull him out. The entire world condemned from Genesis 3, headed toward hell. And Jesus comes in. 
again, one of, I didn't intend metal to be my theme tonight, but one of my, again, for today, as a, as a lyric, it says, he carried me back from hell with his nail-scarred hands. That, he, that he, he, he reached into our mess and pulled us out. He recalibrated our eternal trajectory. And so these two islands that, that sinful man and holy God cannot exist together, Jesus comes and says, I'll make a way. He says, you stand with me and my righteousness on judgment day. You take off your robe of wickedness. You put on my cloak of righteousness. God will see you as perfect in me. Sinner though we are, in him, perfect. In him, perfect. It says, but the Lord is faithful. Verse three, chapter three, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you will do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, into the peace or into the patience of Christ. But we commend you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks in disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul says, I didn't simply consume from the church. We worked and served amongst the church. Some of you are lazy. Some of you are lazy in school. You're lazy at work. You're lazy in your faith. You've been chosen for something more. The Bible combats laziness. You're going to see, he's going to continue. He says, so we were not disorderly, nor did we eat bread free of charge. We worked with labor and toil. And it sounds like legalism. No, it's not. It's the Christian call. It's the Christian charge. He says, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we, were, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. We don't get away from it. We don't get away from serving the church. We don't get away from being lazy in our work or, or diligent in our work, in our faith. God's chosen you. You've been picked. You are on the team, which means you then have to work harder. You don't get to say, I'm saved by grace, so therefore I get to be lazy. I'm good. I don't have to be really good at my job. Jesus is coming back. There's no room for that. I don't have to serve the church. Like, you know, there's enough people. He calls us to something. You make the team, you make varsity, you're chosen for varsity. You have to work harder than you did at JV, yeah? He calls you out of the depths of valley. He says, you've been placed on this earth to, to show a reflection of me. There's work involved. It's not legalism. It's the gospel. Jesus didn't have to work. And for 18 years, we know nothing about him. Why? Because he just worked six days a week. Just worked as a carpenter, contractor. If you don't work, you shall not eat. Verse 11, for we hear that there are some who walk among you who are disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. And there's a difference between being productive and busy. 
There's a difference between being productive and being busy. There are people that can spend an entire day being busy and get nothing done. See it in the workplace. He says, look, there's people that run around. They're busy as heck. What are we doing? What are we doing? Oh, let's get here. Let's go. This. They don't get anything done, actually. Nothing moves. Nothing changes. Work, faith, family, relationships, just always talking, always busy, always, uh, everyone, oh, it's the Bible, and it's by grace and faith. Blah, blah. Nothing changes. No evidence. No movement. No restoration. You've been chosen. We're called to something higher, to be productive as Christians. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing so. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with them that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy. This is key. Do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is the sign of every epistle. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And so I go back to what I said was the theme. If you're here and amid suffering, Paul would write to you and the Holy Spirit commands us to find hope in the fact that Jesus is coming in that meta narrative. Jesus is coming. Don't be shaken by the world. Professors are going to try to shake you. Employers are going to try to shake you. False teachers are going to try to shake you. Maybe parents that aren't believers are going to try to shake you. Friends are going to try to shake you. It says, don't be shaken by the things of this world. Stand fast. Stand fast in truth. Wherever God calls you, you have been chosen. Stand fast and put your faith into action as evidence that Jesus is coming. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for the second epistle. Thank you that, that Paul was diligent to continue ministering to the church. Though he had heard things were relatively good, there was still details to be sorted out. There was still exhortation and encouragement and challenge. And so, though oftentimes in the American church, we feel, man, things are actually kind of pretty good. There's still a call to challenge us and exhort us and push us and and remind us that we've been chosen for more. We've been chosen not because we're good, but because you are good and that you are making us more to be like you. So I just pray as we, as we wrap up these, these two books that, that we would be encouraged in your return, in the fact that you will deliver us, that you will deliver the world from its broken nature but that we would be steadfast now as we anticipate your return and that we would be steadfast in the things that you've called us to be. And so I pray for transforming effect that only you can perform, God, I can't. That you would get into the hearts of your children, that you would stir in them. For those who haven't accepted you, Jesus, I pray tonight would be that night that they would simply look to you and say, I'm a fraud, I'm broken, I'm sinful, and I wanna be made whole. We've all been there. And Jesus, you love to come to those who are in darkness. You love to come to those and redeem the broken. 
And so amid our struggle, would you point us to your glory? Would you use our lives to point to your glory? Would you do a work in your people now? Not for our sake, but for your name's sake, Jesus. We love you and we praise you. Can't wait to see you again. Amen.